Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Good. <laughs> On today's episode, we have Lauren. Hello. And Justin. On today's episode, we'll be talking about T-Rex dinosaurs, apex predators, warm-blooded reptiles, and of course, how to tame your dragon in this reptilian-themed episode of The Grange Point. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. This week's City of Science is the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in southern Utah, which may sound like an odd place for a City of Science, but since 2000, thousands, thousands, but several large fossils have been discovered there, dating back over 75 million years old. Now, I can't communicate in radio how amazingly beautiful and striking the uh, Grand Escalante Staircase Park is. There's a lot of fantastic valleys, rock formations and canyons in this national park, and it looks really, really beautiful. But that aside, there's been a lot of archaeological work going on here to actually discover all kinds of dinosaurs. And that's going to be where our several of our stories have actually taken place. And in fact, where our first story is centered around a high school student whilst walking in this beautiful national park. So Justin, when I was younger, one of my little habits was I used to pick up rocks um, just when I went to different places in hopes that maybe one day I'd be able to find a little piece of gold. That, that's certainly uh, not surprising. I had very large rock collection myself, and I, I still do, in fact, that moved house with me. Uh, it turns out that actually in Utah, a young high school student in 2009 called Kevin Terrace actually went, ar- went around and found this little bit of bone sticking up from a piece of rock and found out that instead of just, you know, another piece of rock that you would pick up and hopefully return to gold, turns out it was actually a fossil. That, that, that's incredible. So he was walking through this national park, the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, and he found this fossilised dinosaur. What kind of dinosaur was it? The type of dinosaur is actually a Parasolophus, which is, a, which is actually a plant-eater dinosaur with really interesting headgear. Yeah, it's basically it's one of the more iconic dinosaurs. You'll recognise it if you see it. It has the long bill on the front and then a big massive snorkel crest up its head that's actually hollow and it can use to breathe and one of the dinosaurs in a land before time is the same type of dinosaur that is also a useful way to remember it turns out that this um, little fossil that he discovered is actually one of the smallest and one of the most complete fossil skeletons that they've found so far and he actually named it joe (laughs) which is which is incredible because when you think about it this site is a very well-known um, dinosaur reserve or dinosaur park where they actually excavate for fossils quite frequently. Um, and there's lots of places like this where the geo- geology of the area means that there's fossils have risen towards the surface and they're easily accessible and discoverable. And how, how this area it? had been walked past by professional archaeologists before and they hadn't noticed this dinosaur. <laughs> Which just goes to show being a curious kid can actually lead to some interesting discoveries sometimes. So, Justin, has there been any other dinosaurs that we've discovered, any really iconic ones we've discovered in this grand staircase? Well, yeah, there actually has been. And one of I love the name of this dinosaur. And dinosaur names are always meant to evoke fear or interesting ideas and themes. This one doesn't need much more description. So this is the Lithronax dinosaur. And basically, its name, its full name is... and. What this translates to is Argetes is the region of the, the American Southwest, and Lithronax it means 
King of Gore, which is just a spectacular name. So for those um, dinosaur paleontology buffs who are playing along at home, this dinosaur was from the late Cretaceous period between 95 to 70 million years ago. And it's in the same Tyrannus family as the Tyrannosaurus rex. So it is along a similar line, a similar genetic line to one of the more famous dinosaurs that we know, the Tyrannosaurus. This genetic line is the Tyranids, for reference. Does this mean that this Lithronax was as terrifying as, for example, the T-Rex? Well, certainly, what it, what it suggests in the, from the name, um, there, it was a large bipedal carnivorous dinosaur just like the T-Rex. Um, but it came, it came slightly beforehand and it had a lot of different features. Particularly, it had a very short and narrow s- snout, which means that it's got a really like unusual head style. It's very narrow and slender. It makes it a bit more menacing. And this, it's been shown that the Lithronax actually appears around 10 million years earlier than most of the Tyrannosaurus that they've actually found. Now, Tyrannosaurus rex is one of the many Tyrannosaurids, and Lithronax has actually come along 10 million years beforehand. Which is really interesting to think about the kind of time scale we're talking about here. Does this mean they both existed around about the same time? Like, as in, even though one evolved before the other, did they did they exist around about the same time? They, one of the interesting parts about this is that it's sort of an overlap. One species starts to rise, another species starts to decline. So it's not so much an off-on switch, like, okay, dinosaur, you're done now. Let's bring out the new dinosaur. Um, and... It's all very interesting dynamic of evolution and change where one dinosaur type changes, morphs, and adapts and becomes more dominant than another type of dinosaur. And that ties into a next story which we're going to talk about, which we talk about the changing power balance between two different apex predators, the Tyrannosaurus rex and another type of dinosaur who is actually the predator, super predator before T-Rex. So when we talk about dinosaurs, we usually talk about how how they're such cold-blooded killers. But research by the University of Adelaide has actually shown that dinosaurs may have actually been more warm-blooded like birds and mammals than we thought. That's really interesting because the whole big thing about dinosaurs are these massive reptiles that are cold-blooded. And, you know, when the asteroids hit and the the environment changed, they all died out because it got colder and darker and they weren't able to survive. So, like, the whole being cold-blooded is what we understand and define dinosaurs as as opposed to the mammals who were warm-blooded. Well, what the um, University of Adelaide actually did was they compared dinosaurs to, for example, um, reptiles like crocodiles, which are known for being cold-blooded. So what, what did they find when they started comparing um, the, the crocodiles to dinosaurs? Were they looking at anything in particular for this comparison? What they were looking at was surface area to volume ratio and the amount of um, cells and size of, for example, something like a dinosaur being able to gener- often generate enough heat to actually produce large actions like going after their prey. If you compare that to, for example, crocodiles, crocodiles spend a lot of time sitting in the sun and soaking up the heat that way. And then to hunt their prey, they usually have one large movement, for example, snapping their jaws shut on their prey. That wasn't the case with dinosaurs. So, they- so you, you can't have it. You, you have one, this big movement, they lie in wait, they sit there waiting, and then they just pounce out, rip out the gazelle from the, from the shoreline, and then champ down on it. That, that's sort of like one big burst of energy. Yeah, and they gather a lot of the energy for that movement through um, heat from the sun. And that isn't a common behavior we speculate often happening with dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are so big that they wouldn't actually get enough heat from the sun and enough energy from the heat from the sun to be able to survive. 
Yeah, because even though they're so huge, they're still going because they're so much more have so much more mass. They need to actually absorb so much sunlight. I mean, it's going to take more than one turn for this massive dinosaur to absorb enough, uh, you know, energy for a, for a dangerous attack like that. So no Venusaur probably would need to spend a bit longer actually absorbing sunlight. So instead, they assumed that this means dinosaurs dinosaurs would probably have to be warm blooded to get all the energy that they needed. One of the interesting parts about that is that the crocodiles themselves, they can actually have, they absorb so much energy from the sun that their body can stay at about 30 degrees overnight simply because of the the insulative material in the skin. They they basically hold in all the heat that they've captured over the course of the day. But if you think about how long it takes to defrost something left in the sun to get that middle part really defrosted and then imagine that on a dinosaur doesn't matter how long they're out in the sun they would really need to to get their core increase in temperature you need to spend so long that it's just not feasible does this mean we were more likely to have um cold-blooded dinosaurs if microwaves existed <laughs> well that certainly would be possible if you might dinosaurs microwave themselves or maybe the dinosaurs just took baths in hot springs mm-hmm. but this is really interesting because the Heat and the body temperature of dinosaurs would enable them to survive in colder environments um, cl- further in the fringes of Earth, uh, which would be very, very interesting and would have made them more able to adapt to the massive amounts of climate change. Now, obviously, none of them are here with us today, but it probably also explains the switch between dinosaurs to birds as well. And that provide more information for that little missing link of evolutionary chain. Does that mean that the theory of the of the comet hitting the Earth and the climate changing too fast for the um, dinosaurs to adapt, does that mean that's less likely to be true? Well, no, not necessarily. I just would mean that uh, dinosaurs in certain environments would have been more better equipped to cope, but there would have still have been a lot of transition and change. Because even if you are warm-blooded, if all of your food sources are not, you're still going to run into a lot of problems. <laughs> true. So when we think about dinosaurs and Tyrannosaurus and King of the Gore and other massive amounts of predators, we have this massive image of this huge reptilian monster that's terrorizing us. And that often comes through in our fiction and our literature with some fantastic dragons, which are these mythical representations of these huge reptilian beasts. You know, the connection between dragons and dinosaurs is a very well-explored and common one. In fact, when they discovered the first fossils, everybody thought they were just dragons. So let's talk a bit about dragons and how plausible they are and go through some of the, the, the techniques and abilities of dragons and speak about whether or not they actually be scientifically plausible or not. Okay, so Justin... When you're talking dragons, the first thing you think about is fire breathing, right? Is it, can we have things that can breathe fire? Well, and that's, that's obviously the biggest, most powerful thing that people associate with dragons. The difference between a dragon and a lizard is its ability to breathe fire. And <laughs> one of that's the major differences. And there is actually some really interesting biological examples of this. Now, obviously, nothing has a flamethrower spitting out of its mouth quite the same way that a dragon does. But the bombardier beetle, the Stenaptitis insignis, and you can probably guess from the insignis in that, that it's actually, it squirts out a toxin, um, benzoquinine, and it can produce heat in a kind of internal combustion chamber, which then spurts out. So if you had such a thing produced, so basically a dragon that was producing a 
chemical with a vapor and then a heat producing engine you should be able to combine the two and squirt them out to actually produce fire so the bombardier beetle itself doesn't actually produce flame like a dragon does with a flamethrower but it's got the all the elements that you need there to actually produce it the biggest the biggest challenge though is actually having something that you can have as a fuel that's not going to also ignite and burn you as well so how would this dragon create that type of fire-burning fuel? I mean, it doesn't just naturally produce flaming um, fuel, does it? Yeah, and that's that's really interesting. Like, diethyl ether is an organic solvent that is incredibly, incredibly flammable. And it produces a lot of vapor, which also catch fire. And the vapor catching fire is exactly what we need for that kind of, like, flaming breath that a dragon has. So you can actually biologically synthesized diethyl ether um which may and since it's organic and since it's not miscible with water it means that it could actually exist exist in a venom sack like you would have in a in a snake or a toad other reptiles um to actually store the venom and then just squirt it out when you're actually attacking something now that gets you the fuel and the vapors that would catch fire and the fact that it's sitting in a venom sack means that it's not actually inside your stomach, for example, and not killing you. So that would also that would also work quite well. Um, and squirting out a venom sack and a venom vapor is something that snakes do now already. The final element is the spark and the catch. So it would need something to actually create some friction and create a spark to actually ignite that venom. But that's not too hard to imagine if you're covered in scales and have some claws. Creating a spark may not be too difficult after all. Maybe eventually some type of animal may evolve to the point of having this fire-breathing ability. Yeah, and that's exactly right. Or maybe we could just use some creative genetic evolution to give ourselves fire-breathing ability in the future. <laughs> but that's, that's, you know, that's one of the big first things about dragons. What, one of the other major things about dragons is the ability to fly. So what's really holding up and how do our dragons in mythology compare to real dragons with the ability to fly, Laura? Well, it turns out that the ability to fly is actually the least plausible aspect of a, of a dragon um, compared to, for example, spewing fire. Just the sheer size of a dragon means that it's a lot harder for it to be able to fly with, for example, wings. Um, and, and why is that? Is it something to do with the size of the wings or the design of them? It's actually the high aspect ratio of the dragon that means that flight seems so improbable. Because if you compare it to, for example, some of our um, biggest known pterosaurs, which is um, one of the largest flying animals ever known, they're actually gliders. So they're long and narrow and they've got high aspect ratio wings. However, the high aspect ratio for dragons as we imagine the for dragons, as we imagine, for example, Smog from The Hobbit means that they would need a lot larger wings than we imagine on dragons. They'd have to be bigger in both span and depth to generate a lot of lift, to be able to um, lift it. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the wings that we think about, they're just not anywhere near big enough. Um, if you think about an Eastern-style dragon, they're long and thin, but they have very, very small wings, so that doesn't work either. You need big wings and a narrow body which none of our mythical ideas of dragons really line up with. So the, I guess the, the final point that we can sort of consider the feasibility of, uh, of dragons is, I guess, their size. And this ties in with the story we were just talking about before. 
Um, reptiles, if they're cold-blooded, like we were discussing earlier, have a lot of problems having enough muscle mass and energy from the muscles and heat to actually give them that super powerful movement. But if you think about how heavy a dinosaur, a dinosaur is for their massive bones, that's never going to fly. So they might need to have hollow bones like birds to give them that extra weight. Now, you would need to have huge, huge and very strong and very lightweight bones and very lightweight body mass to actually enable even the massive wings to lift you off. What you could do, however, to get around this would be to have sacks, air sacks, um, but have them filled with some sort of gas uh, that would enable them to be a bit more buoyant in air. So if, you, if they had um, a gas such as methane, which is a natural gas, it's a naturally produced gas that is perfectly biologically feasible to produce, if they had big air sacs filled with them, since methane is actually lighter than air, they could use that to actually help lift them up to counterbalance the weight and actually give them a bit, bit of the ability to float like balloons or at least make the takeoff and landing with the massive wings easier. But that would also help with the flammability argument because if they had a gas like that that is flammable, then that would also work to help on that. But long story short, the way that we think about dinosaurs, the mythological idea that we have for them, it's just not feasible for flight, for bite, <laughs> and even for flame. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Today's episode, we talked about dragons and how feasible they are, as well as the massive timescales that dinosaurs have evolved and changed in, as well as some interesting facts about the warm-blooded dinosaurs potentially existing. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia. <laughs>